Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, former two-term congressman, Paul Hodes. Justice Stephen Breyer's retirement has raised a number of significant questions about the future of the Supreme Court. To understand what's been happening on the court, the implications of losing Justice Breyer, and what's coming next as President Biden decides on a nominee, we're very pleased to have one of the country's top legal analysts, Joyce White Vance. She's a frequent legal commentator on MSNBC and other media outlets, a distinguished professor of the practice of law at the University of Alabama School of Law, and she served eight years as the U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Alabama. Joyce, welcome to Beyond Politics. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to jump right in as as a former prosecutor from one prosecutor to another on the surface with a six to three conservative majority. It seems that Justice Breyer's retirement might not have that big an impact on the court during his career. Justice Breyer was well known for crafting compromises. He helped the Supreme Court to function in a middle ground like in 2016, when the court was stuck with eight justices for a year. When I prosecuted homicides at the um, attorney general's office in New Hampshire, I actually argued a case, maybe more than one, before Justice Breyer, uh, when he was on the Circuit Court of Appeals down in Boston. And I found him to be exactly what his reputation later became, very practical, a very fair, very, a very pragmatic justice. <clears throat> so I'm curious about your thoughts on the impact on the Supreme Court of Justice Breyer's retirement. How much does the what we might call a bridge building skill set matter on the court? Well, I think it's a it's a savvy takeaway that at least in terms of the numbers, this doesn't matter, at least not right now. Court will remain 6-3 with this newly conservative court. That's unlikely to change here, right? Perhaps what this does is it prevents a 7-2 split. If Justice Breyer had, for instance, resigned later on and there had been a, a nominee administration that, God forbid, was not Joe Biden's administration. But I think the bridge building skill set is the key to understanding Justice Breyer's legacy. He had this knack uh, for taking what was what might have looked like a dissent when he started writing it and being willing to narrow it and compromise it just enough to turn it into a majority opinion. I think that's what happened, for instance, with the Affordable Care Act. He did that in, in Booker, which is sort of an inside baseball case for prosecutors, but this was the federal sentencing case where the court held that the federal sentencing guidelines were unconstitutional in their mandatory form. And Justice Breyer managed to craft a majority for the proposition that they could still be used in an advisory fashion. And that prevented just an absolute disaster in terms of federal sentencing. So that skill set is something that hopefully this next justice will bring to the table too. I just want to follow up because your point about the sentencing guideline as a, as a former prosecutor is so critical to the administration of justice in this country. I struggled when I was a defense attorney with dealing with the federal prosecutors who with mandatory sentencing guidelines. So the ability of Justice Breyer to massage that into a workable compromise that attracted a majority is huge for the administration of justice in this country. I think it is. And Justice Breyer also brought a little bit of, I don't want to overplay this, but I, I mean, he brought a little bit of this Jewish ethic of justice to the Supreme Court in a way that is, is very touching. And I think for those who saw his, his comments when he was with the president last week, where he takes his constitution out of his suit jacket 
and speaks very lovingly to the country, says, I believe in this experiment. It will be up to my children and my grandchildren's uh, generations to carry this forward. You get this sense that this is a man who was very much a defender of the Constitution in very important ways. To kind of go from the sacred to the profane <laughs> in this discussion, you were on a podcast with Preet Bharara last week in which you said, it would be a good strategy potentially for Republicans as we look at this process of selecting a, a nominee and, and filling this Supreme Court seat. It might be a good strategy for Republicans to sort of graciously accept President Biden's nominee, or at least not contest her too vigorously. And we saw some breadcrumbs along those lines over the weekend with the comments from Senator Lindsey Graham, who seemed very open-minded, very accepting of the idea that we should have a Black <laughs> woman as the next Supreme Court justice. And you would contrast that with the reaction of a, a Senator Wicker, who seemed to cast this only as an affirmative action replacement. Not exactly the tone I think you would be looking for in a gracious acceptance strategy from the Republicans. What was your line of reasoning on why Republicans might want to take this more gracious and accepting strategic line? Well, let me just first say that Wicker's comments were completely out of bounds and offensive. And his sense that Black women are per se unqualified, I find to be personally deeply offensive. There is a deep bench of African-American women that Joe Biden could choose from. If he wanted to, he could put nine women on the Supreme Court and have an unbelievably qualified active court. Lindsey Graham is very interesting here. He has a, a long history of believing that if a nominee is qualified, they should be confirmed, sort of a spoils of war view. So I wasn't surprised to hear that from him. But, but look, we are about 10 months out from the midterm elections. Joe Biden is the president and the, the Democrats command a slim majority in the Senate. And of course, confirmation for Supreme Court justices happens exclusively in the Senate. So unless Mitch McConnell is gonna stand up with a straight face and say, oh no, no, new rule, no confirmations ahead of the midterm elections, which would just be absolute mashugas from a guy who permitted Amy Coney Barrett to get confirmed after voting had started in 2020, they don't really have a good argument to make. We know that all of the Democrats voted to confirm Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson when she was confirmed to the DC Court of Appeals. That might make her a very attractive candidate. Some of the other names we're hearing floated around are deeply qualified women who could easily command 50 votes in the Senate. So I think Mitch McConnell has an opportunity here to say this narrative that I'm always obstructive is, is wrong and here I am, I'm gonna back this groundbreaking landmark confirmation of the first black woman to the Supreme Court. It would be a smart political move and the kind of thing we've seen him be nimble enough to maneuver towards in the past. As a follow-up, thinking about going the other way. And can to... I just say, Paul, I said it would be smart. I didn't say I was convinced Mitch would. <laughs> I get it. There is a distinction there. <laughs> there is. We, we've seen right-wing commentators like Tucker Carlson going all out the other way from any kind of gracious approach to this. They are already attacking the qualifications of, of Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, despite the fact that all of the leading potential nominees have records that compare that very favorably, and I'm being, I'm being, I'm being kind of discreet about this to currently sitting justices, including the two most recent appointees, Judge Kavanaugh 
and shall I say, most notably, Justice Coney Barrett, who had never even tried a case to verdict or argued an appeal in any court when she was nominated. So what what do you make of these attacks from the right-wing media, I guess you, you, you're probably going to say, well, what do we expect? But what should the qualifications for the next justice be? I think by any measure, all of the names that we've heard, Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, Judge Leandra Kruger, who's on the California Supreme Court of Appeals, J. Michelle Childs in the District Court in South Carolina, these are people who understand what it means to be a judge, but they have more than that. For instance, Judge Judge Brown Jackson had spent time in a federal defender's office, and that's the kind of diversity President Biden has so often sought to bring to the federal bench with his appointments, understanding that diversity means more than just Black and white and, and Latinx. It, it means professional diversity, which all of us who are lawyers and prosecutors understand is so critical here. So as you point out, in terms of raw judicial experience, these nominees measure up very favorably with candidates who Republicans have confirmed in the recent past. But there is always political rancor around these sorts of nominations. And I think part of what's happening here is the hangover from Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation. If you believe that the allegations made against him were credible, then you view that one way. If you believe that it was a witch hunt brought on by Democrats, then you view both that confirmation and what should happen in this one very differently. And I think we're in just really a dangerous place in America where we no longer have leaders in the Senate who can work together to put us past these sort of painful, dangerous narratives and remind the country that we have to operate on one set of facts. We, how, how we interpret those facts, that can be all over the board, but we've got to operate on the basis of real true facts. I want to take you kind of outside the current maelstrom of political considerations in this Supreme Court nomination and to your own experience. You've actually gone through a Senate confirmation process before, and you were unanimously confirmed. So you must have been doing something right. For those of us who haven't and want to picture what might be coming for President Biden's nominee, whoever it turns out to be, could you maybe take us behind the scenes? What's it like? What, what was it like for you? How did you prepare? And how should one prepare for this? How, how do you picture the eventual nominee here getting ready to go through this process? Well, look, the confirmation process for a U.S. attorney who serves for four or eight years is very different than the confirmation process for a Supreme Court justice who serves for life on the highest. But I had, I, I had an awfully easy path to confirmation. I was one of the first five confirmed U.S. attorneys in the Obama administration. I was confirmed in a group of five, along with Paul, your U.S. attorney in New Hampshire, John, also Preet Bharara in the Southern District of New York, and a couple of others. We all went through together. And I had the benefit of a home state senator at the time, Jeff Sessions, who was deeply supportive. There was this sort of post-partisan moment after President Obama was elected. It's hard to think back to that moment now, but it existed for just a couple of months. And I squeaked through on confirmation in that time period. What happens with a Supreme Court nominee, I think the first effort will be to make sure that all 50 Democratic senators are on board. That will be incredibly important. Of course, the role that Lindsey Graham plays here may mean that they can afford to lose one 
but I think that that will be very important, that there will be a series of, of meetings after the nominee is announced with senators, as many on both sides of the aisle as will meet with her. And that will be ballgame, those personal relationships um, that people build in those sort of meetings. Often in a case like this where it's clear a nominee is going to be confirmed, some folks on the Republican side of the aisle may feel like it's okay for them to go ahead and, and vote for the nominee if they have confidence in her. And just to follow up on that, I remember when I was a staffer on Capitol Hill and now Chief Justice Roberts was up for his nomination and he was doing the rounds as you just described. And one of my colleagues, as it happens, a Republican, but another staffer who was staffing Senator Collins at the time was in the meeting where eventual Chief Justice Roberts met with Senator Collins. And my colleague walked out and told me kind of privately off the record, this was at a time when Republicans and Democrats actually like got along and hung out together, said this person was the most impressive nominee she had ever met with. And that the, that interpersonal interaction, just as you described, really did matter. That kind of feel for how this person's mind works, how they might go about thinking about cases actually makes a difference in the nomination process. And you were saying that it, it actually makes it on the Supreme Court as well, as you were describing for Justice Breyer. So it, that kind of, to me, belies this notion that we all have that the Supreme Court has just become another political institution. Anyone you put on, they're just a cipher. It's just another vote. It's a, it's a Republican vote, a Democratic vote. It sounds like you're saying that, no, individual temperament and judgment and thought and ability to write and craft a, an intelligent decision, that matters not just for your nomination, but also for your eventual job. You're not just a Republican or a Democratic vote. Yeah, I mean, I think you nailed it. And, and I think federal judges resist that characterization as being political. The Chief Justice notoriously and very unusually spoke out when the former president was categorizing judges. I think it was John Tiger in the Northern District of California in one of the immigration cases and was being referred to as, well, what do you expect from a Democrat judge? And the Chief Justice said, there are no Republican and Democratic judges. And in my experience, that is by and large true. And that is what we want. Judges are there to call the balls and the strikes. Of course, the Supreme Court's job is a little bit more involved. They sometimes define the parameters of the game as well. We want our best people there. And that's who we deserve as Americans, is our best jurists on the court. A quick reflection on the, on the Senate confirmation process. I was nominated by President Obama to a position on the National Council on the Arts, hardly the Supreme Court or even a prosecutorial U.S. attorney's office. But behind the scenes of whatever was going on with my champions in the Senate, it was, took a year for the FBI and other agencies to do the vetting on my background. And they spoke to a huge number of people in my life about me to do the vetting so that behind the Senate, the public Senate confirmation process is this vetting process, which has proved problematic for some court nominees in the past. So you never know what might come up out of the vetting process that affects what happens in the Senate confirmation process and the public and the public eye. Yeah, I mean, the, the famous last question for, for my tranche of, of U.S. attorneys was the sex, drugs, and rock and roll question. After you had gone through your meetings in Washington and met the attorney general and been asked all the questions, 
somebody, usually the senior most um, career employee at the Justice Department, for, in my case, a, a wonderful man named David Margolis, who unfortunately passed away a few years ago. David sat down and looked at me and said, is there anything we haven't talked about that could embarrass the president of the United States? And that's mm -hmm. really the last thing that they ask you before they sign off. Yeah. Well, and of course, ironically, I've been on the other end of this asked as a reference as part of this FBI vetting process, one of the questions that you're asked is, has the person you were attesting to, have they ever fomented rebellion or insurrection against the United States government? And it's kind of a shocking thing that that's not a question that all nominees are going to be purely absolved from. We actually have now had an insurrection against the U.S. government. This is such a good point because I've been asked that question so many times. And I remember clearly the first time it was asked, I was fresh out of law school. My best friend was going to a job at the Pentagon. And when I was asked that question, I just started laughing. And then I apologized to the agent and I said, look, this is a guy whose idea of artwork in his living room is a big American flag hanging on his wall. It, it's really, I think, just underlines the strangeness of the times that we live in that FBI agents will now listen with great attentiveness when they ask that question. Let's take a step back. Many, many analysts worry that the court is facing a real and growing problem of legitimacy as, uh, as it comes to be viewed as another overtly partisan institution. There, there is some reporting suggesting that Chief Justice Robert actually agrees with that. Where do you come down on that? Is it a real problem? And is there any real practical solution? Well, you know, perception has a, a way of becoming reality. And as I'm forgetting which justice it was, I think that this may have been Justice Kagan, but, but I, I may be wrong there. But giving a talk a couple of summers ago made the point that the court doesn't have an army that enforces its orders, right? In, in large part, it's the integrity of the court and the public's understanding that it's fair. They may not like every decision that the court makes, but they believe in the court's integrity and the fact that its mission is one of doing justice over time. That's what makes the rule of law work in this country. Perception has a way of becoming reality and whether it's true or not that the court is a political animal, if that becomes the popular public narrative, then the rule of, of law in this country is really in great danger. And I think the chief justice understands that. He is in this very odd position now of no longer being the essential vote, right? With a 6-3 conservative majority, they can afford to lose his vote in every case. So watching, to, to your point, the way the chief justice communicates and works to bring this very divided court together, we saw a little bit of that spill over in Nina Totenberg's reporting on this whole issue, the failure of one of the justices to wear a mask in order to protect Justice Sotomayor. Right. And of course, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Sotomayor pushed back to some extent, but the Chief Justice has his work cut out for him here in terms of helping the public regain trust in the court. I wanna change gears a little bit because obviously the eyes of the political world are very much on this Supreme Court nomination process, but there are other things going on, including we've already alluded to the insurrection and the January 6th investigatory committee. One of the things that they've unearthed became the subject of an article that you recently wrote on msnbc.com titled, Trump didn't sign this newly unearthed 2020 election executive order. We need to know why. Maybe you could just walk our listeners through why this draft executive order was so, as you put it, stunning. And 
why do we need to investigate it even though Trump never signed it? So this is this draft order, not signed by Trump, but apparently recovered in White House documents as part of this request that the January 6th committee made for documents from the, the Trump White House. And this is an order that would have violated a longstanding norm that makes our republic so stable and, and that makes the country work, which is civilian control of the military and the absolute prohibition on military involvement in our elections. And this draft order would have used the military to seize voting machines and other voting data issue a report in seven days. And of course, we can all see the specter of the former president who infamously said on a couple of occasions, you don't have to do a real investigation, just announce an investigation and I can take it from there. He said it in Ukraine to President Zelensky. He said that at DOJ following the election when he wanted them to announce investigations. So this draft executive order shows that there were very dangerous suggestions circulating very close to the Oval Office. The question is, how far did it circulate? What sort of reception did it get? Why did the former president ultimately not sign it? We know that every living former Secretary of Defense wrote jointly in the Washington Post just a couple of days before the insurrection to, to really admonish the then acting Secretary of Defense because Trump had, after the election, moved in a new acting secretary of defense, had moved in a new chief of staff, there's a lot of suggestion there that something dangerous was afoot. And we need to know the truth. Fortunately, the January 6th committee is driving hard. They seem intent on getting there. Do you think that there, there's been some bipartisan discussion in the Senate of trying to fix the election counting act of 1887. Obviously, it was the rickety law that led to so much of the uncertainty and some of the legal moves afoot around January 6th to try to essentially steal the election. Do you think that in light of the unearthing of this memo, that that effort has taken on even more importance, that we, we have to clarify what happens in this post-election period, or we're going to remain vulnerable to more shenanigans like this? Fixing the Electoral Count Act is a necessary but not a sufficient step. In other words, now that we know that there are bad faith actors out there who would abuse it, yes, it needs to be tightened up. But we also need to remember this incredible potential for abuse. There's been a long-term trajectory of voter suppression, certainly in deep South states like Alabama, where I am, but in many other states, we've seen an enormous number of state legislatures enact new provisions that make it more difficult for people to register, to vote, and to have their votes counted. So we need a full court press in this country to ensure that every qualified American is able to vote and have their vote counted. And I guess my final question is, is there any chance that we can recruit you from Alabama to move back up to New England? I would be delighted um, to spend time, more time in Maine where I went to college and where I have a daughter who's, who's currently living, huge fan of New England. And it's such an honor to get to join y'all for the podcast. Well, Joyce White Vance, it really is an honor and a privilege to have you on Beyond Politics. And we're gonna have to have you back. So for Paul Hodes, I'm Matt Robeson. Thanks so much for joining us. Welcome back to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. We just had a really fascinating discussion in the first segment of the show with 
MSNBC legal analyst, Joyce Vance. I wanted to sort of unpack that conversation just for a few minutes. And you may have heard it with a different set of ears than I did, because your background, which you alluded to briefly, is you were a prosecutor before you entered politics. It's true. I had a career as a prosecutor and as a defense lawyer. I'm a member of the Supreme Court. I argued numbers of appeals to appellate courts, including, as I said in our first segment, before Justice Breyer, now on his way to retirement from the Supreme Court, when Justice Breyer was on the First Circuit Court of Appeals in Boston, and I was uh, arguing on behalf of the state of New Hampshire to uphold convictions that I had won as a prosecutor or that somebody else in the office had won. So I have some perspective on arguing before an appeals court and what goes into it and what makes a good judge, but it is absolutely critical to the functioning of our democracy that we have a Supreme Court, which is frankly apolitical, although that is in great jeopardy now in the current era. So what I will reflect about very briefly, uh, a conversation I had with Justice Souter, who I knew he had hired me to come to New Hampshire. When I originally came to New Hampshire right out of law school, it was because I had met Justice Souter. And in an interview, he was then the Attorney General of New Hampshire. And he was so impressive to me as a very young lawyer that I, 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 want, I, I turned down all kinds of other offers to come to New Hampshire to work for him because he struck me not only as a fair and balanced person, although of a different political party than I was, but also um, brilliant. And I wanted to go to work for him. He was then elevated in, out of the New Hampshire Attorney General's office and became a U.S. Supreme Court justice. I remember meeting him casually in the, by the yogurt aisle in, in, in Demoulos, actually, or maybe it was Hannaford's in Concord. And we were having a, con- we had a conversation about his, he, he asked me, he said, Paul, I just can't understand why people continue to vote against their own better interest. But I know that what happened in the beginning of this century, this 21st century, around the Bush, the Bush v. Gore, Gore v. Bush, snafu, that embrolio, affected him really, really deeply because he was a jurist who cared about the Constitution and cared about precedent and cared about the court and cared about where the law led, irrespective of politics. And one of the one of the takeaways from what we've heard from Joyce White Vance is how precarious that reputation and conduct of the court is. But on the other hand, I keep thinking that the court has always been a political institution to some great degree and has been buffeted by political winds before, just as, as it is now with President Biden, who has pledged to nominate a Black woman jurist to the court. Well, I think what really stood out to me is that it is so easy for us to fall into the trap of thinking about everything on the Supreme Court through the lens of politics. And 
we already know in advance everything that Amy Coney Barrett is going to do and everything that Justice Sonia Sotomayor is going to do because of the party of the president who nominated them. And they develop a judicial track record that's liberal or conservative or whatever you, you want to call it. I was really impressed in everything you said in your experiences with those two justices and everything that Joyce was saying. That it's an important consideration, the interpersonal skill set. It's not just legal skills. It's how you take your legal acumen, how you look at a case, how you think about how can I apply the law? How can I write an interpretation of the law that would appeal to my fellow justices and garner a majority? It's actually an inherently political skill, but in the good version of politics that we think of it, not in the overtly partisan wind-up toy version of politics that we're living in right now. It's a, it's a very personal skill, um, an interpersonal skill, and it depends a lot on the personality and temperament of the justices. When I was in, um, you know, quick little story, when I was serving in Congress, I got invited to some wonderful dinner at some wonderful institution in Washington. I forget what it was. And I was seated next to Ruth Bader Ginsburg for the entire evening. This was, I don't know, whenever it was, 2009, 10, I, I don't remember when. But we had this wonderful conversation because we talked about her relationship with David Souter. Oh, dear David. I mean, it was like she was saying, what a nice boy about Justice Souter, because they were they had a wonderful relationship. The relationship of the justices has a lot to do with the way decisions get made, get crafted, the way compromises get made. And we don't often think about that because, as you say, we look at everything through um, through a strictly political lens. But the recent the recent news about Justice uh, Gorsuch and then Sotomayor and the mask the mask incident when they both jointly pushed back and said, we're friends, we work together, we're colleagues. There was nothing personal about this. This wasn't some insult. So the personal temperament of a judge has a huge impact, not only on the administration of justice, but also on fellow justices. And that is true at every level in the judiciary, from a state trial court right up through the United States Supreme Court. The very facile analysis that you see on cable, not from Joyce, who is a very, very deep thinker, but from standard pundits is they view this confirmation process as, look, we just need a ready liberal vote. But the reality is, first of all, that's everything that Senator Wicker is claiming, and wrongly so, that this is just a kind of paint-by-numbers exercise of, well, we've decided that it's going to be an African-American woman, and as long as they're liberal, it really doesn't matter. I, I am very confident that the White House is thinking very, very carefully about the context into which our next Supreme Court justice is going to launch herself. She is going to sit on a court with these six conservative justices and two liberal justices next to her. And that ability, that Justice Breyer-like ability to think about, okay, what are some common, what are some common themes that I can strike as I come up with arguments, as I draft, maybe they're dissenting opinions, as Joyce was pointing out, that can turn into carefully constructed majority opinions. 
how do I find a legal predicate to make an argument that can gather a majority of my colleagues? Those skills are the skills that are going to be needed for the foreseeable future, likely for the next decade or more, and for the better part of this next justice's career. So I am, I am very confident, like I said, that the White House is very much thinking about that, whether it's Judge Kintanji Brown Jackson or J. Michelle Childs or some of the other candidates that have been put forward. They are thinking very carefully about how this next justice would be able to navigate in this environment. And it may be that they would select a different justice who is coming into a different court. If we were talking about a court with a, a liberal majority, you might need a different skill set, but it's going to be very particular, I think, to this exact context. It's, it's going to be very important to have the exact skills that Justice Breyer had. What did you make of Joyce's take, just changing gears? What did you make of her argument about that memo that's come out, that draft executive order? She characterized it as stunning, and she laid out the case that it doesn't matter if it was unsigned. It was such a fundamental assault on our constitution and our expectations of, we don't have military coups in this country. What did you make of all that? If there is a maraschino cherry on top of the Sunday, that is the insurrection and the Trump role in inciting it, and the role of those around him and with him in planning it, in his likely orders for the National Guard not to intervene. However, all of that plays out. The fact that there was a draft executive order drafted clearly not by Trump, but by people close to him, and the likelihood that it was discussed with him shows just how extreme just how far, just how shockingly close to an attempt at a military takeover of our government this was. It is stunning. And let me ask you this from more of a legal standpoint, and I know I'm once again casting you in the position of you're not a prosecutor anymore, but you do understand the relevant U.S. statute involved in seditious conspiracy. Once you've charged for example, the head of the Oath Keepers with seditious conspiracy, it, it brings to bear a whole set of prohibitions in the Constitution. You cannot hold public office if you have been found guilty of fomenting sedition. We just talked about the fact that you can't hold a position of trust in our government if you have been found to be involved in, in an insurrection. If someone was involved, in putting together this draft executive order, might that itself be grounds for excluding that person from a future role in government or a role in public office? Is that in itself a, a form of seditious conspiracy? The answer, short answer, yes, absolutely. That's the essence of a seditious conspiracy. Use the military to seize the voting machines and change the results of the election. I mean, I'm laughing about it because I'm crying about it. That is the essence of, of the Trump approach to democracy, which is democracy, who needs it? It's a word and we don't really need to honor it. And so the whole group of them 
ought to rot in jail for a long, long time, let alone be denied access to political office. And from a prosecutor's standpoint, I know it, there's been a lot of legal discussion about the fact that it's, real, it's a really high bar. That's why we haven't seen that many charges under this statute so far. But would involvement, this is, this is putting you way out on a limb, but would that be a predicate for, for a case here for, for people involved in drafting this executive order? Might that be a starting point? for a prosecution under, under that statute. Remember, conspiracy doesn't require the completion of the illegal act. Conspiracy is, is an agreement by one or more people to do something illegal that in its simplest form. So it, the agreement does not have to be expressed. It doesn't have to be said or even written down because you can use the conduct to prove the conspiracy that the, the agreement existed. So the answer is yes, yes, and yes. Well, that's absolutely fascinating. Well, look, we're going to have to leave it here. I hope people have caught the beginning of our discussion. If you haven't caught it, check out Beyond Politics wherever you get your podcasts. You can hear the whole interview with Joyce Vance. And for Paul Hodes, I'm Matt Robeson on Beyond Politics.